we have been walking through the book of Revelation. I have yet to use my beloved whiteboard uh, during our Revelation series. I, uh, we just hired uh, Ashley Jacobs, who is not here today, and she was saying, I keep hearing people say they like it when you use the whiteboard. Um, she's like, I've never seen you use it. So if you, if you, I'm, I love this thing. Uh, it can go one of two ways. Uh, it can make things more concise, more clear, shorter, or the complete opposite. Uh, it could be more chaotic and less clear and way longer. So we're just going to see how this goes. Uh, but I do love it, um, so I hope it, it's helpful and a tool to use today to kind of get us where we're going. It reminds me of my classroom teaching days. Madeline Bomar was there, and you're still a Christian. Look at that. Yeah, yeah. Just teach Bible. Um, at least I think you are. Are you good? Okay, you're here. Um, but uh, here, here's where we're headed uh, today and, and, and next week. Um, we're kind of wrapping up our series in Revelation and the way that Revelation unfolds to us is it kind of does this swirling around, but it's not a swirling around into chaos. It's actually like a, a tornado that hurls us into more and more beauty. And so John is kind of getting all these different scenes, and there's some repeated scenes. Like in early chapters, he sees this vision, and then he, in later chapters, he sees kind of that same vision from a different angle. So it's kind of been building, swirling around, and, and there are elements of what we're going to look at today as we come to the, the, the end of this book that we have seen before. But what it's doing is, is it, it's actually swirling us into the culminating moment of the whole book. And so we're, we're, we're kind of, we're not landing the plane, but we're getting a more complete picture of what John saw on this island at Pasmos, this crazy apocalyptic vision of Revelation that teaches us about reality of things that are and reality of things to come. We're going to be looking at Revelation 21 today. There's only four chapters in the whole Bible that uh, have no stain of sin in them. Genesis 1 and 2, and Revelation 21 and 22. And so this, this, is, this is this culminating apex moment of, of where this whole thing is headed. Um, and so here we go. We're looking, at, we're looking at Revelation through these different lenses We've looked at the praise of Jesus and the paradox of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the perpetrators against Jesus. And today is part two of the, our kind of final section called the paradise of Jesus, um, where, where all this is headed. So we're going to look at Revelation chapter 7 first because it gives us a little glimpse in the swirl to how things uh, will be one day. And then in Revelation 21, this kind of crescendo moment uh, for John's vision. So Starting in Revelation, I didn't tell the slide guy, I'm, I'm skipping around, you just got to follow along, okay? Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 13, it's kind of John's first little glimpse into the way things will be one day, and then Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. So Revelation 7, starting in verse 13, says this, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in their midst of the throne will be their shepherd." And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then flipping to the end of the book, Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay. German philosophers in the last 150 to 200 years or so, uh, they came up with lots of words. They invented words. Uh, One of the words they invented to describe the human existential experience, Christian or not Christian, secular or religious, every human being experiences, and they couldn't quite nail it down, so they made up a word to try to get us to understand what they were seeing in the world. It's called that every person in the world experiences unheimlich. Any German scholars know what that word means? No? What does it mean? The feeling of not being home. You want to preach? Way to go. Um, Un meaning not, high meaning home, lick meaning like lee, uh, the, the, the unhomeness. It's this, it's this uncanny feeling that in all of life, you are not at home. Now, that's not just religious people. That's meaning the normal human experience is one of, I, I don't ever know if I quite belong. I don't ever know if it's quite safe. I don't ever know if there's a, there's a fortress or a home or a table that is truly mine and I could never be barred from it. I don't ever actually, I keep trying to get to the finish line of like, maybe if I get married or maybe if I have kids or maybe if I get a promotion or maybe if I make some more money or maybe if my career, or maybe if I do some self-work, maybe then I will finally have the feeling of being at home and German philosophers would say, no, the human experience, you will never feel at home. There will be an unheimlich experience for all of your days where you will never quite feel like you're home. It's actually what this passage is all about. It's why nothing in this world quite delivers the way that you hoped it would. It's why we can't ever quite be still. It's why we're all vaguely chasing something, vaguely grasping for something. You have an unheimlich experience of life, not at home. The not-at-homeness that we all feel then turns into this other reality that, okay, it's because I don't feel at home, because there's this not-homeness to my existential reality, here's where we've actually been lied to and where the damage comes in, is you've been made to think that because you don't feel at home, maybe you could do enough on the road home, maybe you could do enough in this experience called life to finally make you feel at home. So I will scrape and I will claw and I will dig and I will climb and I will do whatever I have to do because I have to get rid of this feeling. So I'll do whatever I can to not have this feeling anymore. And the lie that comes in is this. If you are told you will always feel like this, here's what the lie is. Actually, what the world has told you and what we've all believed, there will be no homecoming one day. And so if there is going to be no homecoming one day, I can't live like this all of my days. And so I have to get rid of this not at homeness feeling now. And the world has lied to you. The world is wrong. 
See, for the Christian, what the Christian understands, what the Bible actually says to us in our unheimlich, in our not-at-homeness, is that this world isn't your home, but it will be. This world isn't your home yet. One day, this world will be your home. One day when Jesus returns, he's going to bring home with him. And he will finish transforming this lowly earthly place into his heavenly kingdom. And so we come to Revelation 21, this final vision of John on the island of Patmos, where everything's been swirling and he's seen the tribulation of the saints and the groaning of those in the churches that this letter was written to and the judgment that's coming and the perpetrators against Jesus. And then he finally gets to Revelation 21 and 22. And it's been hinted at all along, like Revelation 7, Revelation 19, these other places where he gets this glimpse into the way things will be one day. But finally in Revelation 21, this spiral into more and more beauty finally comes with this culminating scene and John has shown this. One day there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Whenever a preacher comes to a text, uh, the kind of first exegetical discipline is to say, or to ask the non-rhetorical question, why is this text in the Bible? Why is this here? And that can begin to unpack and do the research and do the digging. And we, and we learn about it. I would, li- I would say to you, uh, with, with, no, with no attempt to over-exaggerate, with no attempt to use hyperbole, which I can be known to do, um, this text is in the Bible because it's the point of the whole Bible. <laughs> and that's not meant to shock you. That's meant to say, this is what it's all been about since the very beginning. So we're going to go on a little journey together, okay? We're going to cover the whole Bible, Okay, I hope you have four hours. Um, okay, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I didn't ask it. Uh, can people in the back see this? If you can't, just lie to me and tell me you can. Okay, in Genesis 1, we're told this crazy thing in the beginning. This is verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's what's left out of teaching normally around Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he creates one place. We're given the narrative, we're given the poetry of a creating God who creates the heavens and the earth. We're only told about him creating one place because it was the same place. The dwelling place of God was with man. He walked in the cool of the garden. Heaven and earth were one. We just sang about it in This Is My Father's World. Like this has been the way God intended it. This is what God wanted from the very beginning. And then in Genesis 3, just two chapters later, not sure how many years later, but two chapters later, something happens called sin. And there's this fracturing of heaven and earth. There's this separating. Sin literally tears at the DNA fabric of what was originally intended, and then it becomes this separated state. Heaven and earth are no longer one. That's what sin introduces into the world. Genesis 3, this separating of heaven and earth, is why you feel not at home. Because you're not at home. Because this was not the intention of the created order to begin with. This was. Heaven and earth were meant to be in the same place. And so, of course, you have a Nunheimlich. Of course, there's this uncanny, haunted feeling that this place is not my home because it's not right now. Because it was supposed to be like this in the garden, and now it's not. Let's fast forward a little bit. Then we get not just Genesis 3, we get the coming of Christ. X is the first letter of the Greek alphabet that spells Christ's name. So Jesus comes. And Jesus did some stuff. I'm just going to represent all that Jesus did with the cross. He did a lot more than just die for you. But his incarnation, his teaching, his righteousness, his death, his suffering, his resurrection, his ascension, all the person and work of Christ create this little Venn diagram. 
where now, oh, heaven and earth are starting to be mended. Literally, Jesus begins his public ministry by saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I brought heaven to you. It was separated because of what y'all did, but now I'm here to restore this. And he began the mending project. He began to restore heaven and earth and make things the way they ought to be. And then finally, we get to Revelation chapter 21, 22, and we're told in this great vision of John, 21 and 22, and other places in scripture, but finally, 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 heaven and earth will be one again, and it'll be the same place. This is the vision of John. This is the vision of the world. This has been the point of the whole Bible all along, that heaven and earth would be one. It's been said by Tim Mackey, Bible Project guy, God in the sending of Jesus is literally getting the hell out of earth. He's like pushing, pushing hell and all of its darkness out because one day this is the vision because that was always the vision. And I know this bumps into what we've all hoped is true. Wait, wait, you're telling me that one day heaven and earth could be restored. One day the way what we long for in the garden, the way things ought to be could be true again. And I know when we start talking about it, it bumps into what C.S. Lewis says, music from the country that you've never been to before. It's like, wait, wait, I know this song. There's this echo. Like, I know, I know this music. How do I know this music? Why, when you talk about heaven and earth being one, does it sound like that's the way things are supposed to be? Because it's the way things were supposed to be. And so we, we have this music in our ears of going, I know this song. I long for it. That's, country, that's, that's music from my home country. That's music from my homeland. But I've never even been there. So why does it sound so nostalgic? Because you were made for it. And so when you hear the whispers of it, you go, something about that has to be true. But because of the pain, because of the wounds, because of the shame, because of the fear, we're too afraid to turn this music up. Don't don't tell me everything's going to be good again one day, because if I hope in it, I've lost too much, I've hurt too much, there's been too much death, there's been too much sadness. Don't dash my hopes again. And so the music from this country we've never been to that we know is our homeland, we don't want to play it too loud because what if we're wrong? What, what if Jesus is a liar and what if he's not bringing heaven and earth back together one day? What if it's not true? James K. Smith, who's one of my favorite living authors, philosopher, says that craving is haunted by losing So this craving that we have that heaven and earth could really be one again one day, that craving, the moment you would would be honest enough to say, I do crave that, I do want that, I do long for the world to be made right again, that moment you admit to craving it, it's haunted by losing it. Because we've all lost so much. And dashed, dashed hopes makes the heart sick. I don't want to lose any more hoping, so we don't turn the music up because my craving is haunted by losing it. We're terrified of daring to believe that there will be a homecoming. It's too risky. What if I hope for it and it doesn't happen? And so John says, I know this is a crazy vision. I'm just telling you what I've seen. Can I tell you about the end of all things? Can I tell you about the end of time? I know your craving's haunted by losing. I know you've lost a lot, Midtown 12 Southers and first century listeners of this book. I know that it's been really tough. Let me just tell you what I saw. And in order to express this reality of heaven and earth being one again, John is given a vision. And the vision in the first part of Revelation 21 comes in, there's kind of two symbols, two sides of the same coin. We're going to talk about one of them next week and one of them this week. Two images. 
that represent heaven and earth being one again. Read with me again, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, so two images given. We'll talk about one more in depth next week. A city and a bride. It's the same thing, but John's saying it was kind of like a city and it was kind of like a bride. The city of God descending down to earth. The city of God, literally the size of the world, coming into the earth and enveloping the whole world. The true heavenly city coming to the world, descending down, descending from heaven to those on earth that belong to Jesus, who one day will live and rule and play and rest and work with Jesus, King Jesus, in a fully restored, created order in this world. Now, I know that reworks a lot of our ideas about heaven. Because if you were raised in the church, or if you weren't raised in the church, honestly, people tend to believe kind of this same generic, frankly, highly lame vision of heaven. Normally, when we envision heaven, we envision these streets of gold, and we envision angels playing on harps, and we're like dancing on clouds in this disembodied state, in this nirvanic existence where nothing is real, it's all kind of ethereal, and I'm just kind of up there playing on the clouds. That sounds more like hell than it does heaven. That's not, it doesn't just sound miserable. If you want to hold up that vision of heaven to a suffering people, and you know that the suffering people don't feel at home at all, and you want to give those people who don't feel at home a vision of ethereal, disembodied living on clouds where nothing's real or tangible anymore, that makes me feel like I'll be less at home. That sounds worse and farther from home. That doesn't make me want to actually hope in anything. But that's what the church has come to believe. It's certainly what those outside the church think the church believes, and those outside the church is what they kind of believe when they think about eternal life and everlasting life. Maria Shriver, Arnold Schwarzenegger's ex, I know, you're like, way to go, way to, way to quote a relevant person. She wrote a book, she wrote a book on heaven, thank you, Maria, for the theology, but it's called Heaven, and all that she described is so flowery, and, and I had this vision of heaven, I'll just be on clouds next to the stars, the brightest stars, and grandma will be there with me, telling me to believe in myself for all eternity. That's lame. And thank you, Maria. You can keep it to yourself. But that's what everybody, that's what everybody believes. And it's not just that it's lame. Hold that up to my actual stuff. Tell that to a trafficked woman in this city who's been ravaged and abused and taken. And you want to tell her in the middle of her darkness and her horror, don't worry, one day you'll be a disembodied spirit on a cloud one day. Like, what does that do for stuff? Tell that to a dying body on the Gaza Strip like this morning that like I know it's hell right now but don't worry you'll get a harp one day like what is that tell that to a covenant family in this city what, what is it supposed to do for people who are facing like real trauma and real tearing and real loss and real loneliness and real pain and real death that vision of heaven that's not this that's not the holy city coming to us to reunite heaven and earth in this world does nothing for me does nothing for anybody Here's what John says he sees, and don't kill the messenger, 
him or me, here's what John is saying he sees in Revelation 21 and 22. He sees it in Revelation 7 too, that's why we, that's why we read it. This culmination of all that has been going on. He sees a city coming down out of heaven into the world and heaven and earth will be one again. He's basically saying that at the end of time, King Jesus will return to marry his bride, the church. We'll talk about the wedding next week. And he's returning with the great city of God and he's bringing all of heaven's joy with him. Do you know that you were made for a garden, but one day it will be a glorious heavenly city in this world. Now, that's not meant to go, I prefer rural to urban. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about, what it's talking about is you were made for a garden and then we screwed it up. We vandalized the garden and God, instead of throwing it all out, God's actually a God of restoration, not decimation. He didn't come and say, well, let's burn that garden to the ground since the humans screwed it up. Let me see if I can remake this and bring beauty from ashes. Let me see if I can restore what the locusts have eaten. Let me see if I can actually be all about redemption and actually make all this new again. Revelation 21 does not say that God, is, Jesus will make all new things. He says, I'm making all things new. I'm restoring what was lost in the garden and it's gonna be even better than the garden was. That's why it goes from garden to city. I'm sure there will be gardens in the heavenly city. I'm sure it will be gloriously rural for those of you that need that. What, I, what it's saying, though, is it's not about green space. It's about what was this underdeveloped world actually will be fully functioning with all of its cylinders and with all of its beauty and with all of its culture and all of its art and all of its music, and it will be like the garden on steroids. That's what it's saying. But it's not just any city. What John sees is not just any old city. It's not like he picked his favorite first century city and hoped that it would be that. Like, oh, I hope it's Athens. That's not what he's talking about. What he sees is Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, or the biblical name for Jerusalem, Zion, the great Mount Zion, the mountain of God that Jerusalem was situated on in ancient Israel. He sees Zion. Now, it's tough to communicate for a first century Jew, an Old Testament Jew, how much for their hope, how much of their hope was wrapped up in the city of Zion. That it wasn't just, man, Jerusalem's my favorite place to go once a year when we go for a festival. That was true. Jerusalem represented so much for them. It was the dwelling place of God with man in the temple. And everything that a Jew believed about the future of the world was inextricably tied to Zion being a steady, flourishing, protected place. That if Zion is safe, then the, then the goodness of God could be a billboard for the world and people would come to Jerusalem, come to Zion and worship the Lord and understand how much he loves them. That, that would actually be, that Zion needs to be intact for the promises of God to go into the world, for the goodness and the understanding and the knowledge of God to go into the world. And so, so much is represented about Jerusalem for a first century Jew. Now, if you're a first century Jew, convert, hearing this vision from John about this new Jerusalem, here's where your mind goes. Because about 20 years before Revelation was written, Jerusalem, the actual city, gets destroyed. 
Rome has to squash a rebellion in Zion, in Jerusalem, and they destroy the temple and destroy the city. You will not have an uprising on our watch, Rome says. And so for every first century listener who's still trying to figure out how does this new thing called Christianity relate to my understanding of the Jewish tradition? How, does, how is Christ the completement of my Jewish faith? How's all this? But I know this, at least first century Jews would have believed this. We need to restore Jerusalem because the temple's there and there's so much tied to that, but they were missing the point. Because it's not about what John sees is not a fully intact, actual physical city of the worldly Jerusalem. He sees the heavenly Jerusalem, the fully restored Jerusalem, everything that Jerusalem symbolizes, the dwelling place of God coming to dwell with man. That's what he sees coming out of the sky. That's what he sees coming down into the world. See, the hope for, for any first century Jew would have believed if Jerusalem is in ruins, then God can't restore the world through us. But it's about what Jerusalem represented to them. It's not about the physical city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem represented their hope. Jerusalem represented their longing. Jerusalem represented their identity. And here's what John says. I saw the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion, coming down out of heaven, and it covered the whole world. Zion herself will come down to earth. And then John has shown something what is life going to be like in this heavenly city? What is life going to be like in Zion when it comes to cover the whole world? Revelation 21 and 22 is all about this. What will life be like? What's the reality of life in Zion when Zion comes to earth, the heavenly Zion? Look at verse 4. This is a summary statement of what life in the heavenly Jerusalem will be like when Jerusalem comes to the world. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Read that with me again. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Everything in you wants that sentence to be true one day. But like we said, your craving is haunted by losing. It's almost too much to, don't tell me about a reality like that if it's not true. That sentence, and basically every other line from Revelation 21 and 22, is the music from your homeland. It's the music of the homecoming. Even though you've never been to that homeland, you know that that homeland is what you're longing for. In the words of Dutch theologian Herman Bavink, in one of his systematic theology works, he says this about the human experience, some of the Unheimlich. He says, even in mankind's most painful disappointments... He cherishes a memory of his origin and his destination. Even in his most painful disappointments, mankind cherishes a memory of his origin and his destination. Do you know hardwired into you is a longing for the garden and hardwired into you, you cherish the memory of your destination. That's why it's nostalgic to think about a place like that. That's why it woos you in and go, man, could, that, could it actually be true? Yes, it once was true. 
and one day it will be again. Getting in touch, daring to get in touch with your inherent memory of your origin and your destination and daring to believe that that destination is coming. That's what Revelation 21 is trying to get you to do. Do you know that one day, one day, the world will beat its swords and its AKs into plowshares? Do you know that one day there will be a last cancer diagnosis? Do you know that one day you won't wonder if anyone wants you anymore? Do you know that one day you'll actually love the you that Jesus loves? Do you know that one day heaven and earth will be one again? Do you know that one day you will feast in the house of Zion? And maybe, not maybe, the culminating reality of this heavenly city the, the description that's buried in that sentence that we read, that, that, is the, that is the root cause of all the other heavenly realities of the heavenly Zion, is this line right here. The culminating reality of the city of God that rejoins heaven to earth is this, is that one day, death will be no more. That's what he says in verse four, death will be no more. What an insane claim. And if you knew the kind of biblical background of death, death didn't exist in the garden. It started existing after Genesis 3. And so the, the, the line of death goes all the way back to this moment when heaven and earth were separated. And now John has the audacity to say, I saw a city, and in that city, death was no more. How dare you, John? Don't, don't taunt us with the reality that death has an expiration date. Don't do it when there's Belmont students getting shot by stray bullets in our neighborhood. Don't do it when cancer surgeries go awfully and dads don't get off operating tables this week. Don't do it when there's forgotten neighborhoods in our town like Napier where gun violence is the norm and not the exception. Don't talk to me about no death when death is all around me. Revelation is showing you that what Jesus Christ came to be and do was eradicate death, and the moment Jesus took a breath Sunday after Good Friday, death was defeated. When Jesus walked out of a tomb, he delivered death, his final death blow. First Corinthians 15, it's another chapter in the New Testament, Paul writing to the church at Corinth. It's all about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. He says, Jesus Christ one day will return to put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be defeated will be death itself. You thought Harry Potter's parents invented that for their graveside, and you were wrong. Paul invented it, okay? The last enemy to be defeated will be death itself. Meaning a victorious Jesus will be the one who gets the final say on how this story ends, not death. A victorious Jesus will be holding the scepter at the end of time to rule the world. And his ultimate victory over sin and death will mean that there will be no more threat of war or death or violence or injustice against his people. All those things will be gone because death will be defeated. Which means... In this in-between time where we live right now, before where it still feels like unheimlich, but we hope for this day, we hope for all things being made new one day, that means that death now, which is real, and the sorrow of death now, which is real, and the anguish of death now, which is real, here's what it's telling you. All of those realities of this living, 
all of those realities are just temporary. It won't always be like this. John is telling you not only does death not win in the end, but he's telling you that Jesus will have the final word on how this world ends, not death. But your homesickness right now, all of our homesickness right now, when we face death, when we see death, when we, when we walk beside death, it feels really permanent, doesn't it? It feels like it is winning. It feels like it is the final word. And so the taunt of death tells you in your homesickness that you will suffocate under the finality of this death. Your homesickness taunts you into believing that death has won. But one day, Jesus will bring your true home to you. This vision of John is meant to show you that all of the pain and sorrow, while earth and heaven are still not one place, while we walk in this life and we stumble home, one day, all of our pain and sadness will be gone. That no matter, no matter the depth, and I know some of the depth in this room for some of y'all, no matter the excruciating depth of the horror of the loss of the death that you have walked very near to or adjacent to, here's what, here's what Paul would tell you, here's what John would tell you, here's what Jesus would tell you, all of that suffering and death has an expiration day. It's only temporary. It will not be the end. So when heaven and earth will be one again, death will be no more. That's actually this reality, death being no more one day, is actually the reality that makes all the other blissful things also true. Because death being no more is not just like, do you know you never have to go to another funeral again? That's true. Do you know that there won't be any sickness anymore because there won't be any death anymore? So, like, that's all true. But it's so much bigger than that. It's, it's that, do you know that death has friends? <laughs> that, like, every little discord in your marriage, every little bit of jealousy between you and your friends, every little bit of strife, every little bit of I hate the way that I look, every little bit of you stumbling back into your addiction, every little bit of betrayal and greed and abandonment that you have experienced, those are all death's friends, <laughs> That's why I love Coldplay's song, Death and All of His Friends. Because here's what Chris Martin is saying, even if he doesn't know that he's saying it, is that one day heaven and earth will be one again and death and all of his friends will be no more. In fact, if you really want to know what I think, which you didn't really ask, but I actually think that when this happens, when Jesus brings Zion home, death and all of his friends by Coldplay will be playing. <laughs> I do. And I, I mean... I hope, I hope I'm right. It doesn't really matter. I'll hear it. Even if you don't hear it, I'll hear it. It'll be my heaven, okay? But it, 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 will, it, will, it will bring in the new heavens and the earth. You heard it here first, folks. When you hear it one day, you're going to be like, I think I remember. Anyway, sorry. But death and all of his friends, it's not just that you won't put any more caskets in the ground. It's that you won't suffer in any way that sin wants you to suffer ever again. There will be no discord. There will be no loneliness. There will be no longing unmet. There will be no cuts and bruises. There will be no sickness. There will be no hate. There will be no injustice. There will be no racism. There will be no poverty. All of those things are death's friends, and one day they will be no more. And you were made for that place. Do you know how I know you were made for that place? Because you were made for this place, and Jesus is going to restore it and make it even better than it ever was. The homesickness is real, and this vision of Revelation is bumping into the memory of your destination. 
someone, dear friend, came up after the last service and said, you know, you know you're just saying what C.S. Lewis said. I'm like, yeah, every week, okay? But, this, but she said, no, 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 like last battle. Remember the quote from last battle? I was like, totally, but tell me, just in case, you know, I forgot. So here, here's, here's what it is. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I have been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little bit like this. Come further up, come further in. This is the land I have been looking for all my life. I have come home at last. That's the memory of your destination. Oh, and by the way, what Lewis says there, the reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Because <laughs> heaven and earth are starting to be one again. There, there are like outbreakings of the kingdom of heaven in this world. It's just not fully done yet. And if any part of the homesick you longs for this vision to be real, I'm sure your craving is haunted by losing. Could there be a home for me? Don't taunt me. Don't hold a hope that could be dashed out before me. Could it be real? And if it's real, how do I know that my Jesus will bring this heaven to me? How do I know that I get to be a part of this grand reunion? Verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is your ticket to the reunion. You ready? Do you know you're thirsty for it? To the thirsty, I will give. Because John just told you, there's actually no cover charge. <laughs> the ticket doesn't cost you anything. Because Jesus has already paid for it. It's free because he's already paid for it. So it says in your homesickness, this vision of the heavenly city, you, you want to know how much it's going to cost you to get in? I will give without payment to the thirsty. Do you know you're homesick? And not just do you know you're homesick, do you know the not at homeness? And have you tried to trust in other rivers to fill up that homesickness? And you can have those rivers Go run to the other rivers of life that you think will make you feel not at home. But if you're trusting in those places to bring you home, then you're not, you actually don't know that this is what you're thirsty for. But if you're thirsty, if you know this is what you're truly thirsty for, it's all yours. This is the quenching of your thirst for home. So would you dare this morning to enter into a memory of your destination would you dare to see what John saw and believe that one day death will be no more in the paradise of Jesus? Let's pray and then we'll sing together. Jesus, we all feel not at home. Even those of us who've uh, loved our homes and love building beautiful homes today, we know the haunt that we're not at home. And so wake us up to our thirst. Wake us up to the reality that one day heaven and earth will be one again. Give us the courage to dare to believe that a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And one day we will see you. And one day there will be no more death when we see you. 
turn up the music on the homeland that we've never been to. Turn up the music on the song that we hope we can sing. Give us courage to believe in this memory of our future. Let's call this in Jesus' name. Amen.